Folks, I'm going to finish. I'm going to try to finish today. So if you'll just bear with me. We don't have that class this afternoon, so we're not really in a hurry. And if we want to be like our persecuted brethren around the world, we'll have church till 6 p.m. this evening. That's what they do. But uh, anyway, let's go ahead and get started. Um, I just want to read really quick as a platform for introduction something I posted this morning on Facebook about this morning's message. It says, Lord willing, I will wrap up my mini-series on Daniel's 70th week this morning. Then I can pick up where I left off in Revelation 6. I'm excited to get into some providences of history to confirm the precise accuracy of God's prophetic Word. Do you think I can preach a sermon from Daniel 9 and relate to all of the following topics? A marathon race, a military hero falsely accused of treason, a cow pasture, a city called Stalingrad, Robert E. Lee, D-Day 1944, Virginia's Rappahannock River, sideburns, a demolition derby, Muslims and Catholics, the Battle of Sabine Pass in Texas, 1863, King Herod, Diocletian the Roman Emperor, Joseph of Arimathea, a piece of tile, two golden calves, a donkey, a Jewish menorah, two huge brass doors that took 20 men to open, the spread of Greek culture, and the year of Jubilee. The audio podcast will be up later. Listen to find out. So... I've got a little bit of an assignment this morning. Who wants to pay attention to this list this morning and check things off as you hear them mentioned in the message? All right, Daniel. Daniel can handle it. All right. I want to see if I actually can touch on all of this stuff in a message about the book of Daniel chapter 9, and you guys can hold me to it. Does everybody have their handouts? Okay, I don't know if we have any extra copies around here. Well, we had, here we go, we got some extras. Anybody need one? Okay. This is a study guide for Daniel's 70 weeks. It will help you to understand where we're at. If you look at the opening section, it kind of summarizes the prophecy. We're not going to read that this morning. The first 69 weeks are in the past. The present time is a gap between the 69th and the 70th week, and the 70th week is future. It's the great, it's the tribulation. And then as you go into the second page, on the back of the first page, we talk about the common interpretation of this prophecy to explain how it was fulfilled exactly. It's Sir Robert Anderson's conclusions. This is the typical interpretation by the conservative teacher or scholar in the seminary to prove that God's Word is accurate. I don't think this calculation is correct because it requires making years out of 360 days each, what Anderson called a prophetic year. And I don't think we have to do that because I think the year from which this interpretation dates, the beginning of the prophecy, is not correct. And so last week I started talking about some of the problems with Sir Robert Anderson's calculations here. One of them is the prophetic year. I don't think we have to do that. I think we can look at his prophecy from a normal solar year. His conclusion that there were 116 leap years between 445 B.C. and the time of Jesus. 
I talked about the differences between the Gregorian and the Julian calendars. Something you can go back and listen to if you weren't here last week. And then we got into number three, the 20th year of Artaxerxes. The Bible says here in Daniel chapter 9 in the prophecy, verses 24 through 27, it says that this prophetic clock for Israel would begin ticking when a commandment was given to restore and build Jerusalem. By reading the book of Nehemiah, we, we understand that that commandment was given in Nehemiah chapter 2. When Nehemiah was sad before the king of Persia, King Artaxerxes, the king asked, why are you sad? And he said, because my city lies in ruins and hasn't been rebuilt. And then Artaxerxes gave a commandment and sent some letters with Nehemiah back to Jerusalem to authorize the rebuilding of the city. Not the rebuilding of the temple like um, uh, Cyrus and then King Darius later reaffirmed, but the building of the city. And Nehemiah tells us this was in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. We know based on history that Artaxerxes became the sole king of Persia in 465 B.C. So that puts his 20th year in 445 B.C. And that's where most people date this prophecy. However, that brings us all the way to 39 A.D. in normal years, and that's too late for Jesus Christ or Messiah the Prince. And so there's a problem. The way Anderson dealt with it is he made it prophetic years of 360 days based on some passages in Genesis and Revelation that seem to equate time with the 360 day year. We talked about why that was last week. But there's an interesting historical context that would show us we could date the 20th year of Artaxerxes nine years earlier. And if we can date it nine years earlier, then everything falls into place in terms of the time of Christ. And it's actually very interesting how precise it falls into place. In order for us to do this, we're going to have to look at some history. And I ended last week by talking about divine providence and how sometimes in history what seems an insignificant incident or something that is of no importance actually initiates a chain of events that changes the entire course of human history. And we often see this in terms of military conflict. If you want to study and see the providences of God, look at military history. Look at battles. Look at things that were insignificant in the way they happened. When um, the Confederate Army defeated the Union Army at Second Manassas, it was a string of defeats, and Robert E. Lee decided to finally cross the Potomac River and invade the North to try to bring a quick end to the war. And so he secretly went behind the Blue Ridge Mountains and was going to cross the Potomac River into Maryland and Pennsylvania. Well, some Union spies that were out trying to figure out what the Confederates were doing found some old cigar butts on the ground, three of them, I believe, that were wrapped up and contained a small piece of paper. And it had some information about the Confederate troop movements. These were taken back uh, to the Union commander, and they were able to decide what was happening and were able to, to meet the Confederates in Antietam. Antietam was a very bloody battle. It was the single bloodiest day in American history. Far bloodier in terms of death and bloodshed than 9-11. And instead of the element of surprise that Lee counted on in Pennsylvania, the Union troops met them there at Antietam Creek, and it was a stalemate. It was a stalemate, and as a result, the Confederates had to come back across the river 
and the war continued. But it was all related to some secret orders wrapped around a few cigar butts that were laying in the dirt somewhere that somebody happened to find. If those weren't found, things would have been drastically different in history. That's the way it works. And we see some of this in this historic context involving King Artaxerxes of Persia. So, most of this dating comes from, I talked about a famous historic document called Ptolemy's Canon or a King List. This thing has lots of problems and I don't believe it's accurate all the time. But I talked about Archbishop James Usher. He's the famous bishop of the Church of England that gave us the 4004 B.C. date for the creation of the world based on the biblical chronology. He wrote a book in 1650 called The Annals of the World where he traces the history of the world from creation all the way until the sack of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 by the Romans. And when it comes to the 20th year of Artaxerxes, Usher dates it as 454 B.C., not 445. And he uses some contemporary Greek sources that were living at the time to confirm that Artaxerxes came to the throne earlier. Okay? It's very interesting. He, we know that Xerxes, the father of Artaxerxes, came to the throne in 485 B.C. We know that. We know that um, we know, he died in 465 B.C. And his son Artaxerxes came to the throne. If he came to the throne in 465 B.C. when his father died, then the 20th year would be here, as, our, as Anderson concludes. However... We learn from history that there was what was called a co-regency where the father and son reigned at the same time. And this happens. This happens in the, in, in the, in the Old Testament, in the kingdom of Judah. Okay? With Jehoshaphat and his son, there was a co-regency. And when you take this co-regency into account, we can move back the 20th year of Artaxerxes and it causes the prophecy to fall into place. Xerxes came to the throne in 485 B.C. He reigned until his death. His son, Artaxerxes, the king of Nehemiah, died in 424 B.C. Okay, so we're only talking about a 62-year period here in history. From the beginning of the reign of Xerxes until the death of Artaxerxes, we're talking about 62 years. This is not a serious period of time in terms of history, but it is important in terms of this prophecy because God's prophecies are not approximate. They're precise and exact. James Usher in his Annals of the World makes reference to a Greek historian by the name of Thucydides. Thucydides makes a reference in his writings to a Greek naval general named Themistocles. Themistocles is a very important person in military history. He talks about how Themistocles fled the Greeks because he was charged with treason. He was a famous naval general that bought victory to the Greeks earlier. And then shortly thereafter, he was some trumped up charges of treason were laid against him. He was treated much like the American general George, uh, Douglas MacArthur after the Korean War. Very similar. He talks about how this Themistocles fled false charges of treason, treason and came to the Persian king sometime between two notable historic events. These events were the Greek siege of Naxos, which was in 474 B.C., and a Greek victory over the Persians at the Eurymedon River in 470. So this contemporary 
of this time period claims this Themistocles came to the Persian court seeking refuge sometime between 474 and 470 B.C. And it's written this way. It says that this Greek general was received not by Xerxes the king, but by Artaxerxes, quote, when he was newly come to the throne. So we know from this contemporary source that sometime between 474 and 470 B.C., that this Themistocles fled and came to Artaxerxes, who was newly come to the throne. Okay? Newly come to the throne. There's another contemporary of the time. His name was Charon. He confirms that it was Artaxerxes, not Xerxes, who received this fleeing Greek general. And neither one of these contemporaries say that Xerxes was dead. They just say Artaxerxes was on the throne. Well, if he came to the throne during this period as a co-regent, his 20th year would have been here. Not what Anderson concludes. So we have evidence from history, and this is later confirmed when some, Greek hierogly- I mean, some Egyptian hieroglyphics were discovered much later in the 19th century, and they associate Artaxerxes with his father in the 12th year of his reign. Okay, So what ends up happening is Xerxes comes to the throne in 485. The 12th year of his reign would be 474. You've got to make it inclusive. The 12th year, not after 12 years. Egyptian hieroglyphics confirm that Artaxerxes was associated with his dad in the 12th year of his reign, so he would have ascended to the throne in 474. His first year would have been 473 B.C. His 20th year would have been 454 B.C. And that gives us another starting place for Daniel's 70th week. Okay? And this is confirmed by three ancient sources, two that lived at the time, as well as some Egyptian hieroglyphics that were discovered later. Okay? So we have to ask ourselves, why in the world would a father put his son on the throne to the extent that he would be seen as the king and the Jews would have had direct dealings with him, therefore they would have dated his reign from the time they dealt with him. What's the historical context that would have put all this together? Because it was obviously important in terms of this prophecy and God bringing it to pass. So I want to look at that historic context because I think what we see is an amazing chain of events that seemed insignificant perhaps at the time, but it literally changed the course of human history In fact, it changed the course in such a way that we can credit this context with the fact that we live in a nation built upon Western civilization, not built upon Oriental civilization, not built upon kings that rule over people, but built upon a citizenry that is the authority, built upon voluntary military forces, not the dictates of kings. We enjoy the fruits of this time period even today because it is where Western civilization was born. And it's Western civilization that brought technology to the entire world. It's Western civilization that brought freedom. It's Western civilization where the gospel by God's divine providence thrived. So I want to talk about this context. This puts a difference of nine years. Okay? Anderson's conclusions, 445 B.C. to 32 A.D. have to be based upon a 360-day year. Otherwise, you're up to 39 A.D. and that's too late for Christ. But if we date this prophecy from 454 B.C., that brings us to 
inclusively to A.D. 30, because there is no year zero. A.D. 30 is much more probable in terms of Jesus Christ and His being cut off, like the prophecy says. Now keep in mind that historically most people have dated the date of Christ A.D. 32, as does Anderson. I don't believe that's correct either. I believe it's A.D. 30 and we can prove it. But let's look at some context. Before Xerxes came to the throne, his father was De- or his predecessor was Darius I. We talked about him before. This was the Persian king that was on the throne during what book in the Old Testament? Anybody remember? The book of Esther. This was the Ahasuerus from the book of Esther. This is the Persian king that took Esther to be his wife. And as a result of her intervention, the Jews were spared against Haman's plot. That's why they celebrate the Feast of Purim today. It's to remember the Jews being spared. But this Darius, who was the husband of Esther, is known for a great military battle in 490 B.C. Okay? This was called the Battle of Marathon. Okay? This took place between the Greeks and the Persians. Now before I get into this, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2. This ties into the book of Daniel because we see this battle of Marathon is the beginning of what God prophesied in terms of the fall of a second Gentile kingdom and the rise of a third Gentile kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar was given a vision in chapter 2. Daniel interpreted it. Nebuchadnezzar saw a great statue which represented four Gentile kingdoms that would rise and fall. Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold. It says in Daniel chapter 2 verse 38 or 37. This is Daniel's interpretation. Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given thee a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven have thee given into thine hand and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. The head of gold was Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 39, After thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee. This was the breast of silver. Okay? Breast and arms of silver. What was the kingdom that arose and overthrew Babylon? Persia. The Persians. But then it says, and another third kingdom of brass. The belly and thighs of brass in the statue stood for a third kingdom that would arise to bear rule over all the earth. Who was it that conquered the Persians? Anybody know? The Greeks. So, this transition from Persian Gentile rule to Greek Gentile rule started in 490 B.C. really with this battle of Marathon. Okay, Turn to Daniel 7. The same vision that Nebuchadnezzar has, Daniel sees it a little bit differently. Nebuchadnezzar sees Gentile kingdoms as great metals that form a great statue. Isn't that how man views man's kingdoms? But God shows Daniel this same prophecy in chapter 7. Daniel sees four hideous beasts come up out of the sea that stand for those exact same four Gentile kingdoms. What we see is great, like gold, silver, brass, and clay, and iron, God sees as a hideous beast. 
Man-made kingdoms are beautiful in the sight of men and to be coveted, but God sees them as hideous beasts because they're made and built by sinful men. There's only one kingdom that can be a kingdom of righteousness, and that is a kingdom in which God is on the throne. Not a democracy, a theocracy. Israel was supposed to be a theocracy where God ruled. And that rule was delegated and exercised properly through judges and a righteous king. But Israel did its own thing. The second best thing you can have is a, a democratic republic, but that even fails because the heart of man is wicked. We need a theocracy to fix this planet. And it's coming. It's coming when the wrath, the, the, the wrath of the Lamb overthrows the fourth Gentile world kingdom which exists today and sets up His own kingdom. But anyway, let's look at Daniel 7, 5, and 6. He talks about a first beast, which is a lion. A man's heart was given to it. That was Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 5, And behold, another beast, a second, like unto a bear. And it raised itself up on one side. And it had three ribs in its mouth between the teeth of it. And they said, Thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. The Persians overthrew the Babylonians in 538 B.C., the three ribs were the kingdoms of Lydia, Egypt, and Babylon, which were overthrown by the Persians. It raised itself up on one side, the bear, because the, media, the Medians and the Persians were an alliance. And soon after the overthrow of Babylon, the Persian kingdom kind of assimilated the Medians and became the dominating force. Verse 6, After this I beheld, and lo, another beast, like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl, the beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. That's the third Gentile kingdom, the kingdom of the Greeks. Four heads. Those four heads and those four wings are unique because we see after the death of Alexander the Great, the Greek kingdom was divided into four kingdoms that would exist for years until the fourth beast came, which was Rome. So this all plays into this prophecy. What happened in 490 B.C.? The Persians attempted to invade the Greek mainland as a starting point for conquering Europe. Okay, The Persian Empire was Asian. They went to cross the Mediterranean, cross the Hellespont from Turkey, modern-day Turkey, into Greece. This was an invasion to conquer the Greeks. At a place called Marathon, Darius' army invaded to put down a revolt, but the Greeks, ironically, were able to do what no one had been able to do before, not even the Babylonians. At Marathon, they defeated the invaders and showed the world that the Persian army could be beaten. There was a, a Greek courier by the name of Pheidippides. When the Greeks, ironically, won this battle of Marathon and it caused the Persians to retreat, he ran 26 miles from the field of battle to the court of Athens to announce victory. And it's said that he ran into the court to the Athenian nobles and said one word, Vikomen, we won. And then he collapsed and died because of exhaustion. That's where we get the term marathon for a 26-mile race. Interesting, huh? Ran 26. We often wonder why is a marathon 26 miles? That's such a strange number. It goes back to this story. This courier who ran 26 miles back to Athens to say, We won the battle. Something they didn't think could happen. So this was 490 BC under Darius the king. 
So the Persians were turned back and failed in their invasion of Greece. Xerxes came to the throne, the father of Artaxerxes, in 485 B.C. And he reigned until 465 B.C. In 480, ten years later, Xerxes attempted to do what Darius did, to again invade the Greek mainland. And we come to a very famous battle in 480 B.C., the Battle of Salamis. You've probably never heard of this because they don't teach this stuff in history anymore. The Battle of Salamis is one of the world's great providential battles. What happened here was so unlikely and it literally changed the course of human history. I said last week, nowhere is the divine hand of providence more evident than in war and battle. I think it was General Sherman of the Union Army said this, war is hell. It is hell. It's hell on earth. It's as close to hell that we can get on earth is the field of battle. And it's God's judgment here on earth. And God uses war and military events to, to direct history. And this is what happened here. Oftentimes, seemingly insignificant battles change the course of human history. Who knows what happened at the French city of Tours in 732 A.D.? Charles the Hammer. Charles Martel. The Franks, they defeated a Muslim army that attempted to cross, had to cross from Africa into Spain and attempted to invade Western Europe. The Muslims were defeated and turned back. As a result, Islam did not invade Europe. Europe would continue under Western civilization and Islam would stay east. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be until the 21st century that Islam conquered Europe. That's what they've done now. There's probably more Muslim influence in London than there is Western influence nowadays. Very sad, and it didn't take a, uh, it didn't take a military battle. It took a bunch of naive white people who don't know anything about history and have kicked God out of their society. Battle of Tours. Do you know that there was a cow pasture not far from here, south of here, not far from Gaffney, South Carolina, that was very significant in the course of human history? There was a battle fought there, there in 1781. Cow pasture. Anybody know what that was? The Battle of Cowpens in the Revolutionary War. In, at Cowpens, the Patriots were able to stop the advance of General Cornwallis and the British following a string of American defeats in the north. And then out of nowhere, there was this Patriot victory in a cow pasture in South Carolina and it seemed to re-energize the Revolutionary War Army and the Americans and it was a turning point in the war. A seemingly insignificant battle that looked lost for a time. The tide changed in a cow pasture. And as a result, things started moving toward an American victory. Some say cowpens was the turning point of the American Revolution. At Tours, the Muslims were prevented from conquering Europe. In the ocean, in 1588, because of an amazing sudden storm, the Catholics were prevented from conquering England and therefore conquering all of Western Europe and therefore conquering America. It was the defeat of the Spanish Armada, 1588. A battle with uh, the, uh, the British and it was a storm that came in the night and wrecked the Spanish Armada that they said couldn't be beaten. And as a result, 
it would be the gospel that took foothold on American shores, not false, the false gospel of Catholicism. A little town called Stalingrad in 1942-1943, the German army tried to invade Russia. They didn't learn from Napoleon. You don't invade Russia and move too fast and then get stuck there in the winter. Because the Russian winter was the mightiest of Russian troops. And because the German Nazis got bogged down at a town called Stalingrad where the Russian troops fought tooth and nail to prevent that city from falling, Hitler got caught in Russia during the winter. And as a result, much of his army was destroyed. Stalingrad was a turning point in World War II and led to the defeat of the Nazis. There was a place in Virginia, May the 2nd, 1863, a place called Chancellorsville. A Union army consisted of 134,000 troops and the only thing standing between it and Richmond was a Confederate army of 61,000. Less than half. And because of a bold move conceived on horseback in the dark between Generals Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson, the Confederates surprised the Union troops and turned an army back across the river that was more than twice its size. That battle was significant because during the rout of the Union troops, General Stonewall Jackson was accidentally shot by his own men. And eight days later, he died of pneumonia as a result of his wounds. Very significant. The death of the South's greatest general was a turning point in that war. And as a result, the United States would may remain a nation and not two separate nations. That's not necessarily a good thing when you look at where we are today, but that's what happened. The death of a single general shot by his own men accidentally changed the course of human history. So battles reveal the providence of God. Salamis in 480 B.C. is one of history's great providential battles. The Persians under Xerxes made a second attempt to invade the Greek mainland. Xerxes had 180,000 fighting men and as many as a million that traveled with the army to work in the camps. Salamis was the largest invasion of a country until D-Day, 1944. D-Day supplanted it in terms of a large invasion of the country. I'm checking them off that list. I'm, I'm checking them off. I know I am. <laughs> Get you, uh, be paying attention because they're going to come in droves. The largest invasion of a country until D-Day 1944. The Persian army built pontoons to cross the Hellespont. The Hellespont is a narrow strait of water that separates modern-day Turkey from, from uh, Europe. And so it's very easy to cross from Turkey or Asia to Europe. Jamie and I were in Istanbul a few years ago and we took a boat across the river and we could say that we stood in Europe, we crossed the river, we stood in Asia. That's the way it works. So the, the Persian army built these pontoons. It was one of the greatest engineering feats in military history to take an army that consisted of more than a million people and literally cross from one continent to another on pontoon bridges. This Something very similar uh, happened in the Civil War. I'll get to that in a moment. But this should have been one of the most lopsided victories conceivable in terms of sheer numbers. The Greeks had nothing to match an army of 180,000 fighting men and a million in the camps. But Athens, the city-state of Athens, resisted when all the other city-states began to capitulate and cave in to the Persians. 
Similar to the Revolutionary War, it was only about a third of Americans during the Revolutionary War that fought against the British. One third of them sided with the British, and the other third decided they didn't want to take a position because they were afraid. At a mountain pass called Thermopylae, 300 Spartans made a rear guard stand to enable the Greek army to, to escape the invading Persian army. Thermopylae was one of the great last stands that showed the power of a patriotic army when it defends its native soil. What troops learned the lessons of history from examples like Thermopylae? Washington and his troops during the Revolutionary War. General Stonewall Jackson often made reference to these Greek victories when studying how to fight the Union troops during the Civil War. Jackson's Shenandoah Valley campaign was based upon the movements of the Greek army during this Persian invasion. How you could, on your native soil, defend against a much larger army if you did it right. And he would look at battles like Thermopylae and try to reduplicate it. There was a place in Texas in September 8, 1863 called Sabine Pass where a union, the Union Navy tried to force a land invasion of Texas and at Sabine Pass, 36 Confederate soldiers turned back a Union army of 5,000 men. Very similar to Thermopylae. There's another one you can check off, Daniel. 36 men defeated 5,000. That's the power of a patriotic army defending its native soil. And that's what you're going to see happen here and the Persians are defeated. There was a general, a Greek general by the name of Themistocles. Themistocles was the one who fled and came to the court when Artaxerxes was king. This Themistocles was able to utilize the small Athenian navy to blockade a narrow strait between the Greek mainland and an island of Salamis. And then, in order to somehow stop this invasion, he lured the smaller, faster, larger Persian navy that was shadowing the invading army into this narrow strait. So this, here's where this Themistocles that I mentioned earlier comes into human history. And he's tied with Artaxerxes and fleeing to his court. So this great Persian army is marching toward Athens. It's checked at Thermopylae. And the navy is coming down and shadowing the army. And it was decided if we could somehow wreck the Persian navy, we can cause perhaps the army to get scared and flee back to Asia. And once again prevent the Persians from conquering Greece. So what happened is this navy was coming. And you had the Greek mainland here. And you had an island. And you had the the Greek ships, they were big and slow and there were very few of them blockading this strait. And somehow they had to lure the Persian navy in here. All they had to do was sail around the island and Athens was here and, and overthrow the capital. But somehow they had to trick the, the Persians into fleeing, to, to coming into this narrow strait. So here's what this Themistocles came up with. He sent a spy to Xerxes. And this spy feigned as one who wanted to betray the Greeks. Look, I'm sick of these people. We want the Persians to rule over us. If you will invade with your navy the next day and come through this strait, during the middle of the battle, me and my troops will turn on the Greeks 
and we will fight with you and we can have Athens in a day and your victory will be complete. So this spy feigned betrayal of the Greeks if he would attack the next day. He said, if you don't attack the next day, they're going to discover the plot and it'll never work. So Xerxes fell for the trick. He caused his navy to row all night and immediately sail into these narrow straits between the mainland and Salamis instead of around the island, which would have been an easy approach. Xerxes took a golden throne and men brought it to the top of a mountain and he sat there to watch this battle. He knew that if he could overthrow the Greek navy, there would be nothing to stand between him and conquering all of Europe. The Persian navy, after rowing all night, they were very tired. They were forced to bunch up to enter this strait of water. And as a result, the smaller, faster, more numerous ships lost their speed and maneuverability. The larger, slower, and fewer Greek ships then turned it into a demolition derby. Basically, the Battle of Salamis was eight hours of demolition derby. These big, slow ships just kept running and smashing into the smaller Persian ships. At Salamis, 500 Persian ships were destroyed at a cost of only 40 Greek ships. And looking at the geography, all the Persians would have had to do was sail around the island and they would have had an open road to Athens. As a result of this defeat that Xerxes watched from a mountaintop, he became paranoid and fearful. And he withdrew his navy and much of his ground army back to the Hellespont to guard those pontoons. Because he was afraid, man, if, if they can destroy the pontoons, we'll be trapped in Europe. We can't get back. And he didn't want to be trapped in Greece. So he took this much larger army and retreated and left part of that army under one of his generals. The next year at a place called Plataea, a very large Persian force was hauled up in a flat area. The Greeks would not attack because the Persian had, Persians had cavalry and if they would have attacked in that flat area, they would have been massacred. There was a supply line disruption, so the Greeks fell back. It was a stalemate. The Persians thought they were retreating. And so they sent the cavalry out to follow the Greeks into these narrow canyons. The Greeks turned on them and defeated them. And as a result, they were routed. They retreated, and then Xerxes made the call to cross the Hellespont and go back to Asia. And a second invasion attempt failed. Something very similar happened in 1863 in the Civil War. The Union Army under General Ambrose Burnside, who, was re who replaced General McClellan after he was fired for not pursuing the Confederates after Antietam, crossed the Rappahannock River in Virginia on pontoons. They built pontoons and crossed into Fredericksburg. And at Fredericksburg, the Confederates were able to checkmate the advance because of their position on the high ground. As a result, Burnside became very paranoid and he pulled his army back across the river because he was afraid of getting trapped south of it. It was a very paranoid decision. He had the numbers of troops that they could have continued advancing. Of course, this made Lincoln and the government so angry, they eventually fired him too. So it was almost like history repeated itself. It's funny how that happens. Ambrose Burnside is where we get sideburns from. 
Okay, he's the one that had these big whiskers that came around and formed a mustache with no beard. And so he was all backwards and made a backwards paranoid decision in this battle and retreating instead of following through that they flipped Burnside to sideburns as a mockery of his military uh, naivete. And so anybody that grows these things on the side that goes back to that General Burnside. They call it a sideburn. That's just an interesting... Uh, that's just an interesting etymology in terms of wor where a word came from. So the Greeks were turned back. The, the invasion of... I mean, the Greeks were victorious. The Persians were turned back. The invasion of Darius into Greek Greece failed at Marathon. The invasion of Xerxes into Greece failed at Salamis. Providential results of this battle. Greek culture would therefore dominate Europe and lay the foundation for Rome and Western civilization. Free from the dictates and authoritarianism of Oriental kings. Out of Greek culture would develop a civilian control of the military, not a king's control. And it would also the concept of freedom and citizenship would develop from Greek culture. The Romans built upon this, and these values that we enjoy today can be traced back to the Greek city-states. And because they were preserved from Persian defeat, Western civilization was born. Another providential result, Persian hegemony or Persian control in Europe failed. If the Persians would have taken over Europe, the world would have developed on a very different... History would have, would have developed very differently. We might be reading the Quran and speaking Arabic today. The Persians weren't Muslims, but the Islam took root in the Persian culture years later. We might be reading the Quran and think of God as a distant, unknowable God that we can never know if it hadn't been for this providential battle. This Themistocles, historians agree, was the only man of his day who could have come up with such a gamble at Salamis and made it work. Six years later, he was accused by some jealous people in the Athenian court of treason. A military hero that saved the Greeks was then accused of treason and he had to flee. And who did he flee to? He fled to the court of the king whom he had defeated because he knew the Persians would respect his military genius. He fled to the Persian court after the siege of Naxos and he was received, not by Xerxes, his archenemy, but according to these sources I mentioned earlier, he was received by Artaxerxes, who was newly come to the throne. So he was received and embraced by the son of the man he had defeated at Salamis. It was very much like General Douglas MacArthur was treated during the Korean War. MacArthur knew that the North Korean army included Chinese troops, and MacArthur said, we need to invade North Korea and we need to invade China and put an end to this. And General Truman wanted nothing to do with it because General Truman cared more about the United Nations than he cared about the United States and its sovereignty. And as a result, MacArthur was fired. One of the stupidest things an American president's ever done. The Korean people this day in South Korea love General Douglas, Douglas MacArthur. But some false claims were made about him. He was fired and as a result, we have a Korean conflict today. And now China's a nuclear superpower. All of that could have been prevented 
if it hadn't have been for some foolishness in our presidency. History repeats itself. Xerxes, who was defeated at Salamis, was a very prideful king. This was the, he was a very prideful king, and his spirit was crushed after this defeat. In a sense, he, he just gave up. We're not going to conquer the world. Why try? He became very depressed. And as a result, he just retreated and says, I don't want anything to do with this anymore. So he retreated to a life of indolent ease, drink, sensuality, a harem of women, and just one big party. I'm not, I, we can't defeat the Greeks. It's all going to end one day. I might as well party it up. That became his attitude. And he didn't even want to be in the capital city anymore, so he retreated to a palace outside the capital and spent the rest of his days living it up. His ability to govern was impaired. And so to appease his concerned generals, he placed his son in his twelfth year, Artaxerxes, on the throne as a co-regent. His twelfth year would have been, around his twelfth year would have been 474 B.C. or 473. That's when Artaxerxes was put on the throne. That's when Themistocles fled to the court around the time of the siege of Naxos. It's interesting that Artaxerxes continued in this role as co-regent or pro-rex until his father's death in 465 B.C. There is no known historic event involving Xerxes after 475 B.C. You had 480 B.C., you had the Battle of Salamis, and after 475 there's nothing known of him in history. And this is proof that he wasn't sitting on that throne and reigning. Someone else was doing it. That was his son. And so his son began the co-regency. 474, he would have ascended to the throne. 473 would have been his first year, his first reignal year. 454 would have been his 20th reignal year. Daniel's prophecy dates from the commandment given to restore and build Jerusalem. Nehemiah tells us this was in the 20th year of Artaxerxes. And therefore, we must date Daniel 70, a week, 70 weeks from 454 B.C., not 445 B.C. So you had a very interesting providential battle that drove a very powerful king into depression. He retreated from the court. As a result, his son was put on the throne. Twenty years later, Nehemiah was depressed. And he asked this king to allow him to return to oversee the rebuilding of Jerusalem and its walls. This king gave a commandment in Nehemiah chapter 2 in his 20th year. And as a result, the prophetic clock of Israel given to Daniel in chapter 9 started ticking. Now what if none of this stuff had happened? What if Darius had been successful in defeating the Greeks at Marathon? What if Xerxes hadn't fallen for the trick at Salamis and the Greeks would have been routed? Things would have changed. But you see, God sees history all at one time. God doesn't do something in history and then wait to see what's going to happen. He has a plan and purpose, and it's going to happen just as He says it will. That's what makes God different than the gods of men. He knows the future. And He can declare it before it even takes place. Now what's interesting is with the defeat at Marathon and the defeat at Salamis, that transition from the second Gentile kingdom to the third Gentile kingdom began. And it was completed. The Persians were finally overthrown as a world kingdom when a small Greek army under a great general turned and invaded Persia. 
built upon the confidence that came years before when the Greeks defeated the Persians around 330 B.C. with a small band of men, a Greek general invaded Persia and conquered a huge swath of land in a very short amount of time. You remember? Anybody know who that was? Alexander the Great. Around 330 B.C., Greece became the world power. So all of this was God's prophetic clock taking place just as He prophesied. The rise and fall of Gentile kingdoms and the start of Daniel's 70th week. So, the 20th year of Artaxerxes is a problem in terms of Anderson's conclusions. The 116 leap years. The prophetic year. We can do away with all of this and we can redate this prophecy and we can see it to be fulfilled exactly. So the beginning of this prophecy would be 454 B.C. 454 B.C., the 20th year of Artaxerxes. Those 70 weeks would begin ticking. We are told that from the commandment until Messiah the Prince would be 69 weeks. 483 years. Okay? 483 years from 454 B.C. would be what year? A.D. 30. There is no year zero. There was no 1 B.C. Year zero, 1 A.D. 1 B.C. went to 181. 483 years, if we date it from here, brings us to A.D. 30. Messiah the Prince, A.D. 30. Did Jesus ride into Jerusalem on a donkey in A.D. 30? Was He crucified in A.D. 30? Or was it A.D. 32? Like has been taught for years. We've got to look at another problem with Anderson's calculations because ultimately he has to deal with the time of Christ as being the end of the 69th week. And Anderson dates this as A.D. 32. Turn in your Bibles to the Luke chapter 3. We learn about when Jesus began His ministry by a couple of statements made here by Luke in chapter 3 of His Gospel. In verse 1, Luke says, Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Tetrarch of Ataria, and of the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, the Tetrarch of Abilene, Annas and Caiaphas being the high priest. The word of God came unto John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance. In the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, John started preaching in the wilderness. Now, go later in Luke chapter 3 to verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus, also being baptized and praying, the heaven was open and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon Him, and a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. John began baptizing in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. One of those baptized by Him was Jesus. So Jesus would have been baptized in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. Then look at verse 23. And Jesus Himself began to be about 30 years of age. So Jesus was baptized in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar when He was about 30 years old. Okay? Now, 
When we come to Tiberius Caesar, we have a very interesting situation just like the situation with Artaxerxes. Okay? Tiberius Caesar came to the Roman throne in A.D. 15. Okay? So, A.D. 15, his 15th year would have been what year? Not his 15th year, the 15th year, not after 15 years. Would have been not A.D. 30, A.D. 29. So, if his 15th year was A.D. 29, Jesus would have been baptized here and He would have died somewhere around A.D. 32. Because we look at the Gospel of John, it mentions four, four Passovers, so we date Jesus' ministry. And so, Anderson said, okay, Christ was received into Jerusalem on a donkey A.D. 32. He was crucified in A.D. 32. If you look back at 445 B.C. to A.D. 32, that is 69 weeks of years if we use 360-day years. So that's where they come to this conclusion. However, it is recorded that Augustus Caesar, Augustus Caesar appointed Tiberius emperor in A.D. 12. And Tiberius was given equal imperial authority in all of the Roman provinces. So the Roman Empire was Rome and Italy and then all the outlying provinces, one of which was Palestine. From A.D. 12, Augustus gave Tiberius Caesar equal authority in the provinces. So we had a co-regency of sorts from 12 to 14 A.D. Now the, the difference is that the Roman emperors were not kings. They weren't monarchs. Rome was ruled in a sense, by a senate, a senate appointed by the people, the senate then delegated authority to the emperor. There were numerous times in Roman history when there were more than one emperor at a time. And certain emperors focused on different areas and they were, they were seen to have equal authority. This happened uh, during the time of... Um, in the 3rd century under one of the very cruel Roman emperors who persecuted Christians. His name was Diocletian. In 286 AD, he appointed a co-emperor. And then later in 293, he appointed two junior emperors. And so what you had is four emperors at the same time. Diocletian just wanted to retire. He was kind of sick of all the politics and he wanted to make sure the power was delegated and taken care of, but he wanted to have less things to do. And it said his decree was that each emperor would rule over a one-quarter division of the empire. So you had this co-regency where four emperors carried equal authority. That would have been the same thing in the days of Augustus and Tiberius. So just like with Artaxerxes, the Jews would have dated, Luke would have dated Tiberius Caesar from the time that the Jews in Palestine had dealings with him as an authority. If Tiberius Caesar was giving, given equal authority in the provinces from A.D. 12, then it makes sense to me that we need to date the 15th year of Tiberius from A.D. 12, not A.D. 15. So if we date from A.D. 12, when would the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar have been? A.D. 26.
AD 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, the 15th year. AD 26 as the time of Jesus' baptism from whence we should date His ministry. Now, Messiah, uh, Anderson's conclusions that Jesus was baptized in A.D. 32 is also problematic because if Jesus died at 33 years of age, He would have been born in what? B.C. 1. That's impossible because Herod the king died just before Passover in 4 B.C. Herod was on the throne when Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Egypt. And then they had to wait for him to die. If Herod died in 4 B.C., how in the world could Jesus have been born in 1 B.C.? It's a problem. But we can confirm this date as the beginning of Jesus' ministry from several different places in the Scripture. The 15th year of Tiberius Caesar being A.D. 12, and it says Jesus was about 30 years of age. That's an approximation. He may, he may have been 31, he may have been 32. He was about 30 years of age. So if we take A.D. 26, the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, Jesus would have been born around 4 B.C. Okay, We know that Herod died just before Passover in 4 B.C. That would have been March or April. Okay, A lot of times the Christmas story is told as if the Magi or the wise men came to Mary and Joseph the night of Jesus' birth. That's the way the nativity scenes portray it. I don't believe that's the case. I believe the wise men came later. It says that they found the woman and the young child in a house. And oftentimes it said it took the wise men two years to get to Bethlehem because of the age that Herod asked or Herod commanded the children to be killed. It says he commanded all the children two years old and under to be killed according to the information he got from the wise men. And so we think, well, Jesus, the wise men must have taken two years to get to Bethlehem. That's not true either. The wise men would have come from Babylon and Persia. Sages. There were a lot of Jews that remained in Babylon and remained in Persia and never went back with Zerubbabel and with Ezra and Nehemiah. It's interesting, if you turn to the book of Ezra chapter 7, I'm sorry I'm running a little long, but I'm hope, I'm, I hope I'm holding your interest here. Ezra chapter 7. Look at this. Ezra makes a journey from Persia to Jerusalem to go back and oversee the work. Ezra 7 verse 9. Upon the first day of the first month began he to go up from Babylon, and on the first day of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem. It took Ezra four months to travel from Babylon to Jerusalem. Wouldn't have taken the wise men two years. It was a four-month journey. Now they may have began, they may have seen the star two years before Jesus' birth, and that's why Herod decided we better kill all the children two years and under. But they would have seen the star before Jesus was born. They would have studied it. They would have taken time to wonder what this means. And then eventually they would have come to the conclusion, we need to travel to Bethlehem. So there would have been time there. It was a four-month journey. Okay, Herod died sometime right before Passover in 4 B.C. The wise men may have seen that star in 2 B.C. And all of the time it took to study it and to pack and to decide to journey brought them to Bethlehem. Okay? Jesus could have been born very 
easily could have been born around December of 3 B.C. Very possible. I don't think there was a long period of time between Joseph taking Jesus and Mary and going to Egypt and then their ability to return. We could have been talking about just a few months. So the wise men came to Jesus sometime after His birth, but sometime before Herod's death. It was a four-month journey. And they could have started that journey even before the Christ child was born because it was according to the time they saw the star. That's very interesting. Very interesting. Look at John chapter 2, verse 20. This bears on a proper dating of Jesus Christ's birth and His ministry. John chapter 2, verse 20. Jesus has just turned the water to wine. It was His first miracle. And then... John mentions that one of four Passovers mentioned in the book of John. The Jews' Passover was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So this would have been very early in His ministry, maybe six months after His baptism. It says He went to Jerusalem. That's where Jesus said, destroy this temple, talking about His body, and in three days I will raise it up. Look what the Jews say to Him in verse 20. Forty and six years was this temple in building, and will you wear it up in three days? That temple had been, was in the process of remodeling as a result of King Herod the Great. And that had been going on for 46 years. This took place, this discourse in Jerusalem took place just after Jesus' baptism. Herod started remodeling the temple in 20 B.C. during his 18th year. The Jews said, man, this has been going on for 46 years. 20 B.C. to what date will give you 46 years? A.D. 26, around the time Jesus, if He was baptized early in A.D. 26, a few months later He's in Jerusalem disputing with them. That again puts the 15th year of Tiberius around A.D. 26, Jesus' birth 4 B.C. and not A.D. 29 as, as um, Anderson affirmed. Look at Luke chapter 4. Jesus preaches a very interesting sermon in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He quotes a passage from Isaiah talking about Jubilee. He stops at a very interesting place in that verse too. Luke 4, 18 and 19, Jesus was... uh, in the synagogue on the Sabbath day in Nazareth, and he stood up to read, and he was given a book of the prophet Isaiah, and he read these verses. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now that verse in Isaiah says the acceptable year of the Lord, comma, and the day of the vengeance of our God. Jesus didn't preach that last phrase because His first coming was not about the vengeance. It was about setting liberty the captives. It's very interesting that the year of Jubilee begins on the tenth day of the Jewish seventh month. September 28th, A.D. 27 would have been the beginning of the year of Jubilee. This would have been after the first Passover of our Lord's ministry in John 2. Six months later, Jesus is in Nazareth preaching 
what I believe was the, at the beginning of the Jubilee year, he preached about the real Jubilee, which was him. And he quoted a passage about Jubilee in Isaiah. This puts us, this puts us in A.D. 27, which was a Jubilee year if we date back in history and look. How many, every, how many years was a Jubilee according to the Jewish law? Every 50 years. So the Jubilee year starts the 10th day of the 7th Jewish month. Six months after Jesus' first Passover, would have been September 28th, A.D. 27. Okay? There are four Passovers recorded in the book of John, and Jesus' baptism occurs a few months before the first of these. We have one mentioned in chapter 2, one mentioned in chapter 5, one mentioned in chapter 6, and the last one, chapter 13. Jesus was crucified on the fourth Passover. So if you have four Passovers mentioned in John, one of them immediately after Jesus' baptism, how many years is that of a public ministry? Three. Well, his, his ministry started with His baptism. His baptism took place before the first Passover, so you have a three and a half year ministry if you date His ministry from His baptism. Okay, So about three and a half years is when Jesus walked the earth and preached the Gospel. Now in John chapter 5, some people say that that's not a reference to a Passover, it's a reference to something else. It doesn't say Passover, it says a feast of the Jews was at hand. I believe this was a Passover. If you look back at John chapter 4, in verse 35, Jesus says, Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look unto the fields, for they are white already unto harvest. Four months under the harvest would have been in December. Okay? And so, what's the next feast on the Jewish calendar after December? It's the Passover. So it makes sense that that was a Passover. Also, you can look at um, John 5 is obviously an event that took place in warmer weather because the people were going down into the pool to be healed. They wouldn't be doing that in the wintertime. You can also look at some passages in Matthew and Mark and Luke where Jesus' disciples are plucking the ears of corn. Okay, All agree that these chronologically follow after John 5. And so they would have been plucking the ears of corn between Passover and Pentecost because that's when the uh, first fruits begin to come off and then Pentecost, the first in gathering. And so it's obvious that John 5 is a Passover. I don't want to get into that anymore. But Jesus' ministry was about three and a half years. It started several months before the first Passover, and the crucifixion would have been on the fourth Passover. If Jesus' ministry began in A.D. 26 sometime, dating Tiberius' rule from when he was given authority by Augustus as a co-regent, then we can determine that Jesus' crucifixion and then all those other scriptures I just gave you confirm these dates. The Jubilee year and 46 years, the building the temple, the journey of the Magi, uh, the four Passovers. This tells us that Jesus was crucified on, in A.D. 30. He would have been crucified at 3, 3 p.m. He died on the Passover, which would have been the 14th of Nisan, the Jewish Passover, A.D. 30. This would have been April the 4th. 
a Thursday. Not a Friday, not a Wednesday, but a Thursday. The Feast of Passover in A.D. 30 was April the 4th, a Thursday. Jesus was crucified. Now in the book of Leviticus, the next feast that the Jews would celebrate was the Feast of Firstfruits. And Leviticus says that firstfruits was to be the morrow after the weekly Sabbath that followed Passover. In A.D. 30, Passover was on a Thursday. The weekly Sabbath is Saturday. So first fruits would have been three days later, the 17th of Nisan, which was what day of the week? Sunday. Jesus fulfilled the Passover when He died on Thursday. He fulfilled first fruits when He rose from the death, dead on Sunday. These dates in terms of days of the week would only work out in A.D. 30 during that time period. Because the next year, Passover would have been on a different day. Okay? And there would be more days between Passover. If Passover was on a Monday, okay, first fruits wouldn't be till the following Sunday. That's more than three days. Jesus said He would be in the earth three days and three, three nights. And so in A.D. 30, it's interesting that the distance between Passover and, and um, first fruits was only three days. Okay? When Jesus said three days and three nights, we mistake when we think that's, this has to be 72 hours. Look really quickly. I'm almost done. Bear with me. Look really quickly at the book of Esther. I'm giving you places in the Old Testament we don't turn to very much. Look at Esther chapter 4, verse 16. Esther was asked by Mordecai to please go into the king and intervene for the people, of the Jewish people. Esther was afraid because she knew if she interrupted the king without being called, it could mean, it could mean her death. She finally decided to do it. She said to the Jews in Esther chapter 4, verse 16, she said, go tell Mordecai this answer. Go gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan. Shushan was the capital of Persia. And fast for me and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. So don't drink, eat or drink for three days and three nights. I also and my maidens will fast likewise. And then I will go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. Listen to these words here. If I perish, I perish. That ought to be our attitude. We're going to preach the gospel... If I perish, I perish. I wish we could have the boldness of Esther. But then look, she said, okay, pray for three days and three nights and then I will go into the king. And look at chapter 5 verse 1. Now it came to pass on the third day that Esther put on a royal apparel and stood in the inner, king, court of the king's, inner court of the king's house. So Esther said pray for three days and three nights, but then it says on the third day she actually went into the king, not after the third day. So it's obvious from this readings where Esther is concerned that there were three full nights, two full days, and part of a third day. And she considered that to be three days and three nights because the Jews considered any part of a day to be a day. Any part of a night to be a night. So when we take this Jewish understanding of days and nights and apply it to Jesus, Jesus died 3 p.m. on a Thursday... 
Okay? He was buried. You have Friday. You have Saturday. You have Sunday. Okay? The Jewish day began at 6 p.m. So their Thursday would have began 6 p.m. Wednesday and it lasted to 6 p.m. Thursday. So they dated things a little bit different. So we had, um, if we look at this correct, we had Thursday p.m., we have Friday a.m. and p.m., we have Saturday a.m. and p.m., and then we have Sunday a.m. So let's look at this. We have three nights, one, two, three, three days, one, two, and part of a morning on Sunday. Three days and three nights. Jesus, some have argued Jesus was crucified on a Wednesday. I think it fits the Feast of the Passover and it fits Daniel's prophecy precise to put it on a Thursday. And that does not contradict three days and three nights according to a Jewish understanding. He was in the earth Thursday evening, Friday morning, Friday evening, Saturday morning, Saturday evening, and part of Sunday morning toward the dawning of the day. If Jesus died on the 14th of Nisan, A.D. 30, He would have ridden into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, which was the 10th of Nisan, A.D. 30. That would have been March the 31st, was Palm Sunday, A.D. 30. Now here's where it gets interesting. Here's where it gets interesting. And if y'all would just let me finish, I'm real sorry, I'm real sorry. 454 B.C., the 20th year of Artaxerxes, unto A.D. 30 is 483 years, 69 weeks. Messiah the Prince, Palm Sunday. From the commandment to Messiah the Prince, 69 weeks of years. Okay? Let's take this 10 Nisan, A.D. 30, and let's figure out the number of days in 483 years based on a solar calendar, not based on this prophetic year. Okay? And if you look at your handout on the second page, a better calculation. Let's follow this. 20th year of Artaxerxes, 454 B.C. 454 to 8030 is 483 years, 69 weeks. Now, let's take 483 and let's multiply it by a mean solar year. 365.24199. How many days does that give us? 176,412 days. Not Anderson's 173,880. Now, let's look at 10 Nisan, 80.30. If we start at that day and subtract 176,412 days, lo and behold, we come to 14 Nisan, B, 454 B.C. Nehemiah tells us that it was the month Nisan, the 20th year of Artaxerxes. He doesn't tell us what day. But if we subtract from this fixed day, we come to the 14th of Nisan. What was that on the Jewish calendar? Passover. It was the Passover that Nehemiah was sad. Why would he have been especially sad? Now we know why he was sad. It was the Passover. The greatest feast on the Jewish calendar and he knew Jerusalem was laying in ruins. And so Artaxerxes gave the commandment on the 14th of Nisan, 454 B.C. Precisely 483 solar years later, precisely 69 weeks 
Messiah the Prince rode into Jerusalem on a donkey in fulfillment of prophecy. Not only 483 solar years, Daniel 9 says that after 69 weeks, Messiah, quote-unquote, shall be cut off. After. The crucifixion was 14 Nisan, A.D. 30. If the commandment was given on 14 Nisan, 454 B.C., precisely 483 calendar years in terms of the Jews, would have gone from 14 Nisan 454 to 13 Nisan A.D. 30. So the day before Jesus was crucified, 483 calendar years were fulfilled. And then what? After 69 weeks, Messiah would be cut off. He was cut off the very next day. So the 69 weeks were fulfilled precisely in terms of solar years and Jewish calendar years. The Jews should have recognized their Messiah. No excuse. They should have recognized their Messiah. Turn to Matthew chapter 22 real quick. Matthew chapter 22 verse 29. Jesus answers the Sadducees who are arguing that there is no... Resurrection. And Jesus levels this charge. And this charge ought to be leveled against so many that call themselves Christians today. You do err not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. The Jews missed their Messiah because they didn't know the Scriptures. They're going to miss Antichrist because they don't know the Scriptures. And they're going to enter into a league with Him. You see, there were those who did know the time of Christ's coming. What would have been based upon? They would have known the time was drawing near based upon Daniel's 70 weeks. Why do you think Simeon was in the temple? He knew the time was drawing near for the birth of Messiah. He knew it. Anna the prophetess. Turn to Mark 15, 43. Mark 15, 43. Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor which also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. You see, it was written of Joseph of Arimathea that he was a follower of Jesus, but he was afraid because he didn't want to get kicked out of the synagogue. It took the death of Jesus to make him bold. He went boldly to Pilate. But he was called one who waited for the kingdom of God. What, what does that mean? Well, he knew the time was near. He knew Jesus must have been Messiah. What happened? Jesus was cut off on the 14th of Nisan. And what did Joseph of Arimathea do? He went and begged the body of Jesus. I wonder if in that moment, Joseph, who was a student of the Scriptures, realized Messiah was just cut off. The 69 weeks just happened. I'm going to go get His body. Joseph of Arimathea must have woke up because it says he was bold here. Earlier he's talked about one being... Afraid of getting kicked out of the synagogue. There were those that knew. There were those that believed. There were those that knew the Scripture. But the great majority of the Jews did err. And they missed their Messiah. They followed so many others who claimed to be Messiahs. 
When the Romans overthrew Jerusalem in AD 70, there were those claiming to be Messiah leading the Jewish troops, and they were defeated. And none of these false messiahs fulfilled prophecies like Jesus, and yet they reject Jesus. They missed Him. But there was a remnant that knew. Jesus' disciples knew. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. What did they ask Him? When they were come together, they said, Lord, will You at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Because they knew 69 weeks were over. The 70th week is a short period of time. Are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? What did Jesus say? It's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in His own power. In other words, God's timetable is different than man's. What they didn't understand is there is a gap between the 69th and the 70th week. It's called the church age. The Jews rejected their Messiah, so God's built a special program. Jew and Gentile together, the bride of Christ. But the day's coming when Antichrist, who the Jews neither will recognize, will sign a peace treaty. And they will think that's the key to their peace. And the 70th week will start ticking. And when the 70 week is complete, Messiah returns. And those things in the prophecy are accomplished. And so, look at your timeline. 454 B.C., 14th of Nisan, the summary. Artaxerxes Longamanus, commandment to restore and build Jerusalem. Forty-nine years, the streets and the walls of Jerusalem were built and completed. Troublesome times. Seven weeks. A.D. 30, 10th Nisan, Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. 176,412 days from Artaxerxes' commandment in Nehemiah 2. That was 483 solar years or 69 weeks. A.D. 30, 14 Nisan, crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The very next day, precisely 483 Jewish calendar years from the commandment Nehemiah 2. A.D. 70, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the Jewish temple. That also happened after 69 weeks. A.D. 70 into the present, we're in a gap between the 69th and 70th week. As the prophecy said, unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. This is also known as the church age. A.D. 30, Pentecost until now. A.D. question mark, the rapture of the church. A.D. question mark, Antichrist signs a peace treaty with Israel, starting Israel's prophetic, restarting Israel's prophetic clock and initiating the 70th week or the tribulation. A.D. question mark, we know it's three and a half years later, Antichrist will break the treaty and set up the abomination of desolation, thus starting what Jesus called the Great Tribulation. And then A.D. question mark, end of the 70 weeks, seven years after the treaty, the six things listed in Daniel 9.24 are accomplished. So friends, that's how this prophecy relates to where we are in Revelation. Because Revelation 6, the opening of the seal, brings the white horse rider. That is Antichrist. Antichrist is central to the 70th week and to God's wrapping up His plan and purpose for the nation of Israel. If the first 69 weeks were fulfilled literally and precisely, we can rest assured that what is described in Revelation from chapter 6 going on is literal and it's precise and it's accurate. We are in the last days. May we be like those Jews in the temple who knew the coming of Messiah. Wait, may we not be like all these people around America who are starting to have their opinions changed about homosexuality and decide with the world because they err not knowing the Scriptures. 
They're going to they're gonna be left behind when the trumpet sounds because they were never saved. And they love the world and not the Gospel, even though they claim the name of Christ. Now it's very interesting that from A.D. 30 until A.D. 70, when Titus began his siege of Jerusalem to burn the temple, was exactly 40 years. 14 Nisan from the crucifixion of Christ to 14 Nisan A.D. 70. And that relates to another prophecy that shows the accuracy of God's Word in Ezekiel chapter 4. So I want you for next week to study Ezekiel 4. And it has to do, I think this should be the last thing you've got to check off, Daniel. It has to do with a tile. A tile. Did I get them all? The only ones that I don't remember, but if they had been, I was writing notes, was the two golden calves and the The brass doors, the menorah, the calves and the donkey. Well, you know what? That all has to do with the tile. So you're going to learn about a tile how it's related to two golden calves, a donkey, and two huge brass doors, and a Jewish menorah. So I did say it, but we're going to talk about it next week and continue into Revelation 6. So I hope your faith in the accuracy of God's Word and prophecy is is revived and, 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 and strengthened today. It happened just as God said it was. We can trust the Word of God. There's no way Daniel could have known this without divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that the prophecy was not given in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God like Daniel spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Jesus came. He was cut off. He's coming again. He will reign. And we'll reign with Him as the church. I'm very sorry for this lengthy message and the time, but we had the window to do it because of God's providence today. And uh, I'm excited to continue in Revelation. Keep that hand out and it will help you. It's something you can use to show somebody as they question the Word of God how prophecy is accurate. Okay? I love history. I was a history teacher once. Let's pray over the meal. Father, thank You for this day. We thank You for Your Word and that we can trust it. Lord, help us to not be like those Sadducees who didn't know the Scriptures, but to know Your Word and to know your coming, the time of Your coming. Lord, to know when the days are short and to know what we must do. May this food bless us. Thank You for this time around Your Word. And we pray for those who are sick that you will heal them and bring us all back together next Lord's Day. But bless this time of fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.